So let's jump into the scripture, Mark chapter 8. We give you these listening guides so you can follow along, and in case the error doesn't work, uh, they make great fans. <laughs> you know, as a pastor, you need to have a general knowledge of a lot of different things because you're meeting and ministering to a lot of different people. And so I pride myself on having uh, Goldilocks intelligence, uh, not too hot and not too cold, just average. Uh, And uh, I have found that just average intelligence is good enough to be a pastor because I can have a conversation, a shallow conversation with a lot of different people, but not always real deep conversations, especially about what they do for a living. The other day I was having lunch with a friend from church, and he's a friend. I know what he does for a living, but I was trying to be an awesome friend and ask him some more minute details about his job. Parents, you know that moment when you're talking to your kids and you can just tell on their face that they stopped listening to you? <laughs> so I'm having lunch with him, and I can feel my brain shutting down as he's talking about the finer points of his role at his company, and I can see my eyes glazing over... Because I knew the vocabulary of his job, but I didn't know any of the definitions. You know how hard it is to have a conversation when you don't actually know the things that you are claiming to know? It's very hard. And what we're going to see in the scripture today is a conflict between Jesus and one of his disciples. Because they're using the same vocabulary, but they have different definitions. And it's a conflict with one of his disciples and not an opponent, which is important for us to remember. So here's the synopsis of this morning. You can see it in your listening guide. Right vocabulary, wrong definitions. Right vocabulary, wrong definitions. How tragic would it be if when this life is over and we're on the brink of the life to come, if we realized that how we defined Christian and how Jesus defined Christian were two different things. Chapter 8, verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. So this is at the northern edge of Israel. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist and others say Elijah and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. So Jesus is doing a survey among his disciples. Who are people out there saying that I am? Some said, well, they think that you're John the Baptist raised from the dead. Other people say you're Elijah, our historic forefather, prophet from the Old Testament, raised from the dead. And Jesus turns it to them and says, but who do you say that I am, which is important, because in just a second, we're going to see that Jesus is going to demand a lot of us. In fact, he's going to demand more of us than we are currently believing he's asking from us, and the opinion and faith of another will not be enough to take you to that place of obedience. It doesn't matter whose opinion or faith it is, your granny or your mom or your wife or your kids, their faith, their opinion about who Jesus is will not be enough. Who do you say that I am? And notice that Jesus 
does the opposite of what we anticipate, he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. He says, I want you to keep this a secret. Peter, you were right. I am the Christ, but I want you to keep it a secret. Why did he say that? Because we're going to see in just a moment that Peter only had a partial understanding about who he was. In your listening guide, to Peter, Christ meant immediate earthly triumph. Immediate, here and now, earthly, on this earth, of this world, triumph. It says in verse 31, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, when the word Messiah or Christ was used in first century Israel, there was a general awareness and agreement about what that meant. It's hard for us to really wrap our minds around it, but I think it would be helpful if you could, and this would be good for some of you and a terrible tragedy for others, but imagine that all of us in the United States were uh, fighting Texas Aggies, right? right. So just imagine everybody in the whole uh, United States knew all of the songs, knew all of the yells, knew all of the traditions, knew why in such a militarized tough uh, environment. Their dog uh, mascot is a fluffy little dog. Uh, we, knew, we knew that. We didn't just have to wonder that. We, we all knew. Just imagine we all knew it together. Right? That's what it was like in first century Israel when you talked about the Messiah. This was something that all of us did together. We were all looking for him. All of us knew the prophecies from the Old Testament. All of us thought about it and we talked about it when we would go to the market and when we would go to the synagogue. We were all on the same page. So for Peter, he's just in agreement with the rest of his people that when the Christ comes, it was going to be immediate earthly triumph. A few things were going to happen. First, he would emerge as Messiah and everyone would know. Uh, Second, he would push out the Roman Empire. Remember, at this time, Rome ruled most of the known world. And they had established governors in and around Israel. The Israelites had their own leaders, but they were more just local leaders. And they reported up the Roman food chain. So when the Messiah came, that was going to be an end. Then the Messiah would become king. And then the Messiah would establish a government. And once that happened, God would return back to earth in the same way that he had done in the Old Testament. So when they went to the temple to make their sacrifices, it wasn't just religious ceremony. It wasn't just religious pattern. When the Messiah came, established his government, God would return. They would see the, the, the smoke in the temple of God's glory. And when they would lay their sacrifice on the altar, it wouldn't be fire just from underneath that would consume that offering. It would be fire from heaven, just as in the days of what we call the Old Testament. This is what everyone is expecting. This is how Peter is defining Christ. We see this in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, after Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. This is his last and final moments with his disciples. And one of them asked the question, are you at this time now going to redeem Israel? What are they saying? Are, you, are we going into Jerusalem to be king now? Are you going to establish your government? 
Are you going to push out the Roman Empire? Is God now going to return back to earth and redeem all of this tragedy that we've suffered in the second half of the Old Testament? That's what they mean. We won't read it for time's sake and heat's sake, but we could go to Luke chapter 24. In between Jesus' death on the cross, three days, Jesus has been resurrected from the dead, but most of the disciples either don't know or they don't believe. And two of them are walking along the road to another village. And you remember the resurrected Jesus appears to them. They don't know it's him. And he just kind of eavesdrop on their conversation. And they, they're talking about Jesus and they had all these expectations and hopes. And yet it didn't work out because he died. And, and then it says that Jesus comes alongside of them and he opens up the scriptures. That's what he says what it says. He opens up the scriptures, starting with the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and he shows them that the Christ must have suffered. But the disciples, they didn't understand because for them, it just meant immediate earthly triumph. The second thing in your listening guide to Peter, Christ follower, then meant immediate earthly promotion. They believe that Jesus is the Christ. He is the future king of Israel, which is good news for them because what do kings need? Kings need assistant kings. Kings need governors and rulers, and the disciples know this. That's why we see in more than one occasion they're arguing among themselves about who is the greatest. For example, in Luke chapter 9, they're arguing about who ranks the highest. Um. You would not do this with your friends. You wouldn't go to lunch after church is over and just be sitting with friends and family and go, hey, time out. Uh, let's just talk about which, which of us is the best right now. <laughs> you wouldn't do that because it's weird and it's awkward. Right? Unless maybe you all worked for the same company. Right? And then you would be saying, uh, well, you know, I have the best education. Uh, or you may say, I have the most seniority. The disciples were maybe saying, well, hey, I was the first one to uh, follow him. You know, I was the first one to leave everything. Another would raise their hand. Peter may raise his hand. Well, I was actually the first one to say that he was the Christ. You guys were a bunch of cowards. You didn't come out with it. I'm the one who said that. Another would say, well, yeah, but uh, he goes to me for counsel a lot. When he calls me in for prayer, he like always prays the thing that I request first, you know. They're jockeying among themselves. Why? Not just because they're filled with pride, but because there are future positions at stake. They don't want to be sent to some backwater Israelite village. They want to be in Jerusalem. They want to be assistant kings and rulers and governors and counselors in Jerusalem. That's why in Mark chapter 10, just two chapters from where we are right now, Mark is going to record the story of James and John, two of the disciples coming to Jesus. And one of the other gospel accounts says that their mommy came with them and they're going to ask, can we sit one on the right and one on the left? Why do they want to do that? They want to be Jesus's first stop at council. They want that authority. They want that privilege. They want to be in his ear as an assistant king. And their mom, of course, their mom is coming with them. You talk about bragging rights in first century Israel. What do your sons do? Well, one of my sons sits at the right hand of the Messiah in Jerusalem, and the other one sits on the left side, and that's it. Maybe I did have three or four other sons, but we don't talk about them because one of my sons is on the right and one of my sons is on the left. 
They're arguing about who ranks the highest at the Last Supper. You remember what Jesus did at the Last Supper? Two things that should put this to shame. Number one, uh, he gets down and he washes their feet. The future king of Israel is down washing their feet. And in the midst of all that, they're talking about what their future is going to be like. And then he lifts up the bread and he says, this is my body broken for you. And the cup, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is given to you. Christ follower for them meant earthly promotion. Why? Because they were just thinking about the here and now. Just the here and now in this life, here and now. And when our minds are filled with the here and now, our only requests to God will be about promotion. If we only ever think about this life that we are living right now, the only thing you will ever want from God is promotion. It's like the accumulation of, uh, on your house, you bought your house 10 years ago and you lived in it and now you could sell it for more than you bought it for back then. That's the way most of us feel with Jesus. If I just hang out long enough with him, I'm going to eventually accumulate more and more and more and more. It's just about promotion. And notice Jesus does not mince words when Peter comes to rebuke him. Because Jesus' version of Christ, definition of Christ, was different than Peter's, which meant Peter's definition of a Christ follower was different than Jesus' definition. So he rebukes him and says, this is not God's plan. And what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. Now, I grew up as a church kid in the 80s, and uh, Satanism was very big in churches in the 80s. Not like not in it, but like talking about it. It was a thing all the time. I remember I even went to an arena in my hometown, not not a church, not a high school gymnasium, an arena in my hometown because a former Satanist was coming to give his testimony in the town. It was like everybody in, in the city showed up to listen. And it was just like this one mental picture of what something satanic looked like in the 80s. And you were wearing black all the time. So like they would probably think I was a Satanist today. I'm wearing all black. Right? And uh, you had long hair, of course, because Satan doesn't keep it short and tight. You know, it's long. He lets it go past his shoulders. Everybody knows that. I mean, forget Jesus had long hair in the 80s. If you had long hair, that was a clear sign. Satanism had taken hold in your life. You said things, and you did incantations, and you went out of the wilderness, and there were goats involved somehow. And all of that, all of that is what the satanic looked like in the 80s. And maybe that's how even we're defining it now. How we discern is something satanic. We would use terms like that. But look how Jesus defines what is satanic. He says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Why? You don't have the things of God in mind. You have the things of man in mind. And I'm guessing very few of us, only a handful today, would fit the 80s definition of satanic. I'm guessing 100% of us today would fit Jesus' definition of satanic. To have the things of man in mind. And forget man, that's too general. To have the things of Curtis in mind. And not God. So Jesus rebukes him with the hardest possible language. Because Jesus' definitions were different. To Jesus, in your listening guide, Christ meant immediate suffering, eventual triumph. 
Verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So when Jesus defines Christ, suffer many things, be rejected by religious leaders, be killed, and then after three days rise again. And he said this was necessary. The Son of Man must suffer many things. Why? The prophet Isaiah tells us why suffering had to be a part of the definition of Christ. Generations before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the prophet Isaiah writes this in chapter 53, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Why did the Christ have to suffer? First, to bear our grief and our sorrow. Second, So that he would be wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, so that he could bring us peace, so that we could be healed by his stripes. It was suffering that accomplished all of this. Remember last week we were in Mark chapter 7. Jesus is talking to the the Pharisees and scribes and he's offering them a critique. And at the end of that critique, he gives a long list of what's in the human heart. You remember this list? Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, uh, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Jesus said all of this is in the human heart. These aren't just things that we do. This is what's inside of us. How are you going to get rid of that? That's in you. How are you going to get rid of it? The Pharisees, the religious leaders... They put on a costume to hide it. And they said, if my costume is clean enough, it doesn't matter the condition of my heart. Jesus says, that's not enough. This list is why Jesus had to suffer. This is why being Christ did not lead through a throne in Jerusalem, but a hill outside of Jerusalem so that we could be forgiven of this list. So our iniquity and our transgression could be removed. So instead of this, we could have peace in our hearts. Instead of being diseased with sin, we could be healed by his stripes. So Jesus says to be the Christ is to suffer. And that's important for us because we are Christ's followers. And to him, the definition of Christ's follower in your listening guide meant immediate suffering, eventual triumph. Verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. But whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. 
For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with holy angels. Now we see this list of denying ourselves. Jesus uses himself or his cross. Of course, he's talking to everyone. Denying ourselves, taking up our cross, following, losing our lives, not being ashamed. We see that list. That's for the elite. That's for the Navy SEALs of Christians. Not even the Navy SEALs, but like the Navy SEALs Team 6. It's for those people. These are for like the professionals. These are for the missionaries and the pastors and the Bible study leaders. This is... This is extreme living, this list. But Jesus says, this is, the, this is the basic requirement of being my disciple. This list doesn't get you into Harvard. In Jesus' mind, this list gets you into community college. I say that as one who went to community college. This is the basic. This is not for the advanced This is for the beginner, denying ourselves, taking up our cross, following, losing our lives, not being ashamed. This is what Jesus uses to define what it means to follow him. He says, denying ourselves, which means to not live according to our unsanctified passions and desires. We all have that gut instinct with which we use to make decisions. It's not an actual gut, but metaphorical gut. I mean, some of us have an actual gut, but we're speaking metaphorically. Right? How do I know what to do? How do I know what to say yes to? How do I don't say no to? Do this, don't do this. We go by our gut instinct, our desire, what's in our heart, that urge, that internal drive inside of us. But Jesus would say, if you're a disciple, you're going to deny yourself. So the only way that you should ever use your gut to make decisions is if you have said to your gut, you exist to do the will of God. Gut, decision-making, unction inside of me, you have been set apart to glorify and honor God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So if you are not consistently saying that to your decision-making unction inside of you, then don't go with your desires when deciding yes or no. Because we need to deny ourselves. And rarely, if not, if we've not intentionally set aside that, rarely will our internal desires do anything other than say yes to us. When in doubt, you always side with you. And Jesus says, you want to be my disciple, you got to deny yourself. And if you are a husband, a wife, a mom or dad, a friend, a coworker, a son or daughter today, you know that without denying yourself, you cannot have a healthy marriage. You cannot have a healthy home. You cannot have a healthy friendship. Denying ourselves is difficult, but it's a necessary ingredient, ingredient for healthy living. Number two, Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you have to take up your cross. Diedrich Bonhoeffer said, the cross of Christ is laid on us all cross of Christ is going to be laid on you and your decision is to either carry it or let it crush you. But he will lay it on your back. They laid the cross on Jesus' back in and around 
Pilate, the Roman governor's uh, home, his palace in Jerusalem, after they had beaten him within an inch of his life. It was heroic that Jesus was still alive by the time they even fashioned that cross. And then they made him carry it up and down through the streets of Jerusalem, outside the city gates and up on a hill because that's where they like to crucify people so that people coming in and out of the city could look up and say, I better not cross the Roman government because if I do, that's what happens to me. It was a place uh, called the Skull, Golgotha, because somehow the hill looked like a skull and they named it that. So when Jesus says, basic requirement, entry-level question, if you want to be my disciple, take up your cross, then you and I are agreeing to head to Golgotha. We're headed to Calvary. Luke's account of this story, Jesus says, take up our cross daily. So every morning you and I are waking up and we're getting coffee and we're getting our kids ready and we're getting off to work and we're sitting in uh, traffic, all that somewhere in the middle of that, you and I need to decide today I'm headed to the hill. That's where I'm going today. I'm headed to Calvary, a place of death and torture. Why? Because I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And wherever he goes, I go. And man, I would have loved for him to head to Hawaii. And I would have loved for him to head to a different hill, like the Country Club Hill or even Washington Hill, although that doesn't seem that desirable right now in this political moment. But anywhere would be better than the hill that he ended up on. But that's where he ended up. And so if you and I today would say, I'm raising my hand to say that I believe that Jesus is the Christ. That is where you're going to go. And he says you make that decision every day. Not just the one time I had a religious experience and the song was really getting amped up and I was feeling my emotions and everything. Okay, I'm following Jesus today for the rest of my life. This is a decision you and I will have to make tomorrow to head to, to Golgotha, place of the school. Because you'll either carry your cross or it will crush you. He says, and follow me. You remember in the 90s? The 80s and 90s were some of our best decades, I think. The 90s, we had that bumper sticker that said God was our co-pilot. You remember that? It was such a great turn of phrase. Uh, terrible theology but great bumper sticker. Could not be further from the truth. You could not make a bumper sticker that was further from the truth than God is my co-pilot, although it feels warm like a blanket today to say, you know what? Wherever I'm going, God is right next to me. He's my buddy. Me and him, we're doing stuff together. It's gonna be great. And you can see how we end up with that because that's not as, uh, that is a better uh, bumper sticker than I'm headed to die on a hill with him. That does not feel pleasing and it does not feel warm. So we retranslated, take up my cross and follow me to we will be partners. That's how we got that bumper sticker. No offense to whoever made it. I didn't Wikipedia it. Because I don't want to follow. I want to decide and have him join me in my decision-making process. But the reality is, is God is not our co-pilot. He is the only one that should be driving anything ever. And we should head to the back. And not just like first class back, but all the way to the very back where the bathrooms are. That's where it should be. The distance between me driving the plane and him driving the plane. 
He says, you gotta follow me. And if you're not willing to follow, you can't be my disciple. Then he says in verse 35, for whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Now, when he talks about whoever would save his life, he's talking about saving it for ourselves. So if there would be a part of us or all of us that we would withhold from God, we would say, God, you can have everything in my life, but I can't, I can't give over to you my job because it's precious to me. I feel validated when I'm there. It's how I provide for my family. It's really important. Uh, so you can have everything else. You can have my family. You can have my hobbies. You can have my time. You can have all of that. But at work, that's me and kind of my space. Jesus would say that you're going to lose that. You're going to lose that if you hold it back for yourself. Some of us would say, God, you can have my family. You can have my decisions, all of that. But I need my material stuff. I need the house that I live in and the cars that I drive and things that I want. I need all of that. You be God of all this other stuff, but this I'm going to save for myself, Jesus. So you're going to lose that. You're going to lose it. The best way to lose your happiness is to try to hoard it. What's happening in Cypress, Texas? Just hoarding happiness. Build a privacy fence around it. Can't have it. And Jesus would come to us and say, that's not going to last. That's not going to last. That's, that's here and now thinking. It's here and now thinking. He said, if you want to save your life, then you, you should lose your life for my sake and for the gospel's sake. We immediately hope and pray that he's talking metaphorically 90% of the time he is. He was not speaking metaphorically to the men who were listening to him in this moment. Uh, at least 10, maybe 11 of those 12 disciples um, would lose their life for his sake and the gospel's sake. So we interpret it as a metaphor for a bigger picture. These men had to interpret it literally. And Jesus is saying to them and maybe to us if you're not willing to go all the way then maybe you're, you're not a disciple that does not make a good bumper sticker in 2017 and then he says that we shouldn't be ashamed in verse 38 for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels, what Jesus is communicating is all of this is happening in public. The denying of ourself, it doesn't happen in secret. It happens in public. And taking up the cross happens in public. And following Jesus happens in public. And losing our lives, he wants all of this to happen in public. Why? Because that's compelling. That's compelling to people. When they see people who are so radically sold out, bought into Jesus being the Christ, the Savior of the world, that they rearrange literally everything about their life, that is compelling. You know what is not compelling in 2017? Trying to be a good person with some Jesus uh, sprinkles on top. That is not a Sunday that anyone in our culture wants to eat. When somebody's loved one gets cancer they don't turn to the normal life Sunday with the Jesus sprinkle on top person they even know that God does not hear your prayers they see through that 
you know who they go to? They go to the weirdo who seems to have things happen in unexplainable and invisible ways. The one bought in, sold out to Jesus as Messiah. And he says, don't be ashamed. But he gets to define the terms. So we'll finish our time with Jesus' first question to his disciples. Who do you say that I am? It doesn't matter what I say today. What matters is who do you say Jesus is? And if you say that he is the Christ, then let him define what it means to be a Christ follower. Let's pray. One of Jesus' promises in the Gospel of John is that his sheep recognize his voice and he knows his sheep by name. So why don't you take just a second and ask him, the shepherd of your soul, what step would you have me to take next? God, help us to be doers of that word and not hearers only in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you stand?